still on Spotify. Good afternoon. Um, wonderful to see so many of you uh, here this afternoon. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome um, Heather Brook, who's a professor at City University. Could you um, to, uh, to speak to us this afternoon? Heather. Uh, is uh, obviously um, teaches at, at City University, but she's also an investigative journalist. She worked with The Guardian on WikiLeaks, uh, but in particular, she's known in Britain for the work she did on the MPs' expenses uh, revelations uh, a few years ago. Uh, and she's uh, in, in particular has kind of led a lot of FOI uh, investigations as well. She's written books about um, digital society, about the secret state. Uh, and about uh, the public's right to know, and I think in terms of public's right to know and access to information is very much going to be theme this afternoon. So Heather, you're very yeah, welcome, thanks. and over to you. Thank you. I'm going to I'm going to stand up just so I can see everybody. Um, hi, uh, very happy to be here today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of an over an overriding theme that's been part of my journalistic career, and it is I guess what I've kind of called this clean hands journalism. And what I, what I mean by that is, as a journalist, our currency is information. Um, we're always trying to get hold of it. And a lot of times, the way you get hold of it is that you have to practice what was called access journalism. It's kind of similar to access journalism, is that you want something from somebody, but there's a transaction that's going to occur. They may or may not give it to you, and they may or may not give it to you based on what you're going to do or not for that person. And it's basically a kind of bartering exchange program. Um, I, you can probably tell from my accent, I am not totally British, although I am a British citizen. Uh, but I'm also an American citizen, and I have British uh, parents, but I grew up in America, and I went to journalism school in America. And I had my first uh, newspaper jobs in America. I worked as a state house reporter in Washington State, and then I was a crime reporter in South Carolina, which was very educational, and it was, uh, was a real baptism by fire. Um, so uh, in America, when you're learning journalism, um, who, are any fellows American, by the way? Okay. I went to, oh. journalism. <laughs> I went to journalism school in the US oh, okay. as well. Well, one of the kind of tenets of, of uh, journalism school there is what's called um, a public document state of mind. And it's um, this idea that uh, the way you do your job as a journalist is you have this kind of almost encyclopedic knowledge of all of the machinery of government um, that is translated into these public records. So, you know, official documentation that is available to the public, but usually the public either don't know about it or they're not that bothered about it. Um, but for a journalist, this is our currency, and so we are bothered about it, and we go off and <coughs> we go off and find it. So my first kind of big scoop um, was uh, when I was an intern, um, and this is how I got my first job. I was an intern first at this paper in Spokane, Washington, and uh, my editor had suggested that I do an investigation on my local politician's expense claims. You will see where this is going. <laughs> it's obviously, you know, started, started young on this track. Um, and I said, oh, how do I, how do I do that? I had no idea that, that this was even a thing you could look at. And he said, well, just go to the clerk of the house and ask to see their expense claims. And I thought, oh, okay. I had never thought about doing that. Um, so I took myself off to the, clerk's house, uh, the clerk of the house office, and I asked, 
hey, I'd like to see all of the Spokane uh, legislators, um, the, the legislators and the senators' expense claims. And uh, she said, okay. I mean, literally just said, okay, here's an office. And she just started bringing me boxes full of receipts. This is back in, what is it, 92, it was, you know, pre-internet and digitization. So everything was a piece of paper, and she gave me about three or so boxes of all the um, receipts they had filed for taxis, airline tickets, hotels, anything that they'd claimed as an expense. And then my job was to rifle through all of these boxes looking for some dodgy claims where they'd charged some pornography on their hotel bill or they'd eaten the, like, I don't know, you know, sort of a lobster thermidor or anything that I could possibly sort of turn that would be wasting the public's, the taxpayers' money. Uh, unfortunately, all of these legislators were incredibly upstanding people and I couldn't find any scandalous uh, claims that were being made. But what I did... Uh, what I did get from it all was that they did a lot of uh, airline travel and um, they accumulated all of those miles on their frequent flyer cards, which they would then use for their own, you know, their own sort of like freebies. Um, so in, this, in the scale of it, it's not like a huge story, but for me as a student journalist, it was, it was a big story and it did go on the front page of that, of that newspaper, how much they, you know, how much they charge for travel and where they go to and how much, you know, how, how much they're kind of personally benefiting from all the miles that they rack up. So uh, there was a couple things I learned from that. Um, the first thing is uh, I, there was, Washington State has a very strong public records law that um, states that um, all this information uh, is, is uh, owned by the public, and so they have a right to see it. And it's not the property of the state house or the politicians or anything else. It's, it's a public record, and the public at any time can go and look at it. And there's very uh, minimal restrictions on it. Um, I think it's for that reason that I didn't find any scandalous claims, because all the politicians knew that at any minute, any one of their constituents could just rock up to the state house and, and request their files and see what they've been up to. So I took that, uh, and this was my sort of second job that I had at the very illustrious Spartanburg Herald Journal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, and I was a crime reporter here, but you can see that this sort of bug had already infected me and I wanted to know what everybody, how they were spending the public's money. And so I uh, did this uh, story where I got a budget um, and I went through it to see who was the highest paid in the county. And I created a league table there, the fat cats of Spartanburg County. So <coughs> I then sort of was, I think I was 26, 27. I had a kind of quarter life crisis, which I think people, especially in journalism actually have. Some of you are having it right now, and that's why you're here. Um, <laughs> I, uh, 
I, I became very disillusioned about journalism and I was just really fed up with it. There was a lot of politics in my newsroom. I was just, I was basically disillusioned. I had these very idealistic uh, hopes about what it was going to do and how it was going to work and how it was going to change society. And then reality just crashed this party and I was like, oh, this, this sucks and it's all corrupt and I don't want to be part of it anymore. So I left and I came back uh, to England and I did a graduate degree in English literature and I spent a year just reading novels, um, which, was, which was really good. I think it was, the it was a combination of a lot of things. It was being a crime reporter in the Deep South for four years. My mom died and I was sort of hitting this, where I just, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? I wasn't sure. I need to spend a year just, you know, reassessing what I want to do. So I decided after this year at uh, Warwick um, that I wanted to stay in England and I decided to move up to London and um, worked at the BBC and we, well, I think I actually applied to Richard for a job ages ago. He didn't hire me. And, and then I went traveling for a year, and then I was doing some freelance work, and this kind of bug, I, you know, that I couldn't really get rid of, I, I just still was intensely curious to know what was going on in Britain, and I wanted to know how did decisions get made, where is the money going, how, you know, what, what, what's happening. And I uh, came up with this idea for a book, uh, this is my first book, um, which I'll show you again, but um, it was called Your Right to Know. I pitched it as an idea to a, a bunch of publishers and one of them accepted it. And it was, um, it was really my vision of what would journalism be like in Britain if it was more like America, um, if you had a right to know, if you could actually access information. Because what I'd already started to glean from my time in Britain was that the public didn't have a right to know. And that, that was an, an actual fact. There was no statutory right that the public had to access government information or official information. And that only came into being in 2000 and, well, the law was passed in 2000, but it didn't actually come into force in Britain until 2005. They had a five-year lag time to kind of get themselves psyched up for, you know, democracy in action. Um, and this is why I pitched this book, because I thought, wow, this is going to blow the lid off Britain when the public actually have a statutory right to find out what's going on. So I wrote that book as a kind of manifesto, maybe a manifesto, but also a, a guidebook for journalists and the public. Here's all the stuff, A, here's how Britain works, so it's kind of a dissection of like the British state and how it all is divided up and how it fits together and how it works. But it's looking at the state in a kind of forensic, with a forensic eye about what information it stores. So how, um, you know, how does the, what kind of information does central government store and which department stores, which kind of information, what do local governments do, what information do they store, uh, police, what do they do, and what are the information that they collect and the courts. It's, and I just went through every part of the state doing that. And then I started training a lot of journalists, but then I also started making my own FOI requests in Britain. So um, one of the ones I made was for restaurant inspections. 
this is a little story I wrote in the New Statesman. I discovered that in Britain, uh, I mean, amongst all of the uh, incredible secrecy I found here, there are these restaurant inspectors employed by each local council in Britain uh, and paid for by the public. They go around and inspect every restaurant for the public's benefit, but their inspections were not given to the public. They are, were kept secret, and I thought this was ridiculous, and so I filed my first freedom of information requests asking for these restaurant inspection reports. And um, initially that was, you know, they were not very receptive, but then gradually they, they realized this was kind of an untenable secrecy argument, and eventually they started giving, giving them up. And so I got these discs full of all of Westminster's um, restaurant inspections. Uh, there's my book again, which I just talked about. Um, one of the other things uh, which I want to talk about, when I say clean hands journalism, it's that I think something is happening, I have a hypothesis about something, I want to try and prove is that true or not true. And I don't want to have to take people out to lunch or in any way, I don't, I don't want to be compromised by <coughs> my relationship with that person. I really just, m mostly because when I first started practicing in Britain, I didn't know anybody. So I couldn't, I couldn't actually take anybody out to lunch because there was nobody to take. Um, but, but I also, I just, I found it a bit grubby, you know? I, I kind of looked on British journalism as being quite grubby. I still do, actually. Um, I just find there's a lot of uh, amorality about it, you know? There's a lot of hypocrisy and amorality about it. And, and a lot of it is these kind of like, sh what I kind of think are shady deals, very transactional. I think that was very um, much exposed with the phone hacking story, the whole News International, the police, the cabinet, you know, all this kind of, this sort of trifecta of power and how they all were in each other's kitchens having kitchen suppers and all, all this kind of thing. Um, I understand why it is the way it is because for most of British journalists' careers, there was no other way to get information. Like, that was your only option. You had, to, you had to get people on side. You had to kind of wine and dine sources. You had to take the police out, get drunk with them. That was the only way to find out you know, about, a, about a criminal incident or something. Well, so I had this idea that I mentioned to you. Um, this is just a kind of sort of a snapshot or example of, of how, how I kind of approach information. I had this idea that that five-year gap from when the Freedom of Information Act was passed until it was put into force, it was claimed that it was, it was a time for government to get prepared for FOI. But in my research for Your Right to Know, I called up every single uh, central government agency and almost all other smaller agencies, and I found that they were totally unprepared. I was calling them in, the, in 2004, so you know, less than a year before the, the law came into effect. And most of them had no FOI officer and they were just completely unprepared. And so I, I just had this theory that I bet, I bet that time was really just about shredding documents, embarrassing documents. And so I made this FOI, which I then made into a spreadsheet, um, which is I just sent it like, and I did a store, a big section, a big um, sort of double page spread from the Daily Telegraph about how the amount of shredding had increased over time, up, you know, until the, until the documents came out. Um, so I, I kind of got started with that. 
Um, then I, uh, I remembered that story I'd done in Washington State, and I thought, oh, I wonder if I could just do an, an, an exact replica of that story I did in Washington State for Parliament. And um, so I looked up the rule book for Parliament on how they pay expenses. And I, I found this source document. You can see I've like, I'm just, I'm just highlighting and circling things. Um, this is called the Green Book. And it's what uh, regulates you know, parliamentary um, administration. So this was the, <coughs> the head of the fees office. Andrew Walker, and um, what I thought was interesting when I read it is that it says here, we have a long history of serving members and we pride ourselves on the high quality of our service and on our confidentiality. <laughs> and I thought, why, why, is, it, why is that uh, something you would pride yourself on as, a, as public servants, you know? Why, why are you sort of saying, it just it struck, it struck out at me. Um, And then, yeah, and then I also read here that um, it, it, was the, it was the member's responsibility to make sure the claims were legitimate. And, and by reading it, it made me think, like, well, does it sound like they are particularly rigorous in any kind of enforcement or really, really looking into it very much? Um, and then I also, by then I did know some people. Um, from, from my book, I'd gone off and interviewed loads of people. And one of the people I interviewed was Michael Crick, who was then at the BBC. And um, he had been working on a Newsnight program about members of parliament employing uh, family as staff, but then not doing any work. So it was basically kind of a gravy train for MPs and their relatives. And so one of my first uh, requests, freedom of information request to parliament, was about um, MP staff you know, how much they cost, who they were, etc. And um, I don't know if this is the... Yeah. Um, it was rejected um, right off the bat um, as being personal information. So... Um, Yeah, so it's, it would be inconsistent with the principles of the of, of data protection principles, basically privacy. And um, I challenged it, but there's a, there was a, there's a part of the law, I won't go to the arcane parts of the law, but if the Speaker of the House signs a certificate, it makes all the information absolutely exempt. And in this case, that's what the Speaker did. He signed the certificate and it was absolutely exempt and there was no way to appeal it except for a judicial review, which I didn't really want to do. So I just kind of gave up on that one, but I didn't give up on the whole thing entirely. In fact, I was just more uh, sort of fired up about, about opening up this bastion of unaccountable elitist power. Uh, so I then filed some other requests, but the one that I really focused on was the additional cost allowance. So this was the money that MPs were given to um, have a second home um, so they could be in London, no matter where they lived, they could have a place in London to, do the, to be in London for the parliamentary session and do their public work. So I filed an FOI for that, and again it was rejected, un rejected under privacy. 
Um, but th there was no certificate signed this time, so I appealed it up the channels, and um, eventually it went to the information commissioner. And then, uh, mm -hmm. then it went up further to the information tribunal, and then it went uh, to each time I, I, I partly wanted the information commissioner. I did win at the information tribunal, um, but Parliament appealed, and then it went to the High Court, and um, that's where it was it was fought over at the High Court. Um, this is this was the highest court at the time. We didn't have a Supreme Court then. Um, it could have gone to the Court of Appeal, but fortunately, it didn't. I was still a freelancer. I am, well, yeah, I was a freelancer doing all this. Um, but I had some good lawyers who I've met doing my Your Right to Know book, and they um, represented me pro bono. And then we went to the uh, High Court. We went on a conditional fee agreement so I could continue and represent myself. So uh, that case went to the High Court, and I eventually won. And um, I've, I've skipped something here, which I'll just fill in briefly, is that, so I won the court case, mm -hmm. and it, uh, the three judges ordered that Parliament had to disclose all of these receipts. Um, the court case was, we had to just, um, because it was a test case, we had to just narrow it down, so there was 14 MPs named in that court case. Um, and their information was immediately <coughs> released but all the other MPs who were now uh, obliged by that ruling, they were given time to digitize all of their records. And those records, um, this ruling came out in May uh, 2000, was it eight or nine? Eight, I think. Um, no. <coughs> no, yeah, May 2008. <coughs> they were given until October 2008 to publish. But Parliament didn't publish. It uh, found all these reasons to delay the process of digitization, saying it was very technically com complex and cost money. And um, then they tried retrospectively to change the Freedom of Information Act so that it would no longer apply to them. And they did that in January. And it was, it was when they did that, it's speculated, that somebody who had been in the redaction room, which is the room where they were digitizing all the information and they were allowed to censor certain personal items like credit card numbers uh, or bank details. Uh, somebody who was doing that work uh, saw what Parliament was doing where they were basically trying to retrospectively eliminate all of this material. And they made a digital copy of the data set uh, because it had all been digitized by then, um, they made it a copy of the entire data set and they started to shop it around to uh, different newspapers. And um, sadly, I didn't have a checkbook with 110,000 pounds in it, and so I didn't buy that disc. Uh, I didn't even, I mean, I sort of had heard that it was going around, but I didn't really know how to do that kind of. Journalism, <laughs> so this is the, yeah. So because it wasn't what I was used to, um, I wasn't I wasn't sort of in the loop of this kind of checkbook journalism where you're buying you're bar basically bartering information, um, and uh, the Telegraph was the paper that eventually paid and bought the entire disc, 
And then they started uh, a month-long series of exposés about all the data that was in that disk. And then it wasn't until a month later, in June 2010, that, that Parliament actually released the official documentation. Um, redacted, though. And a lot of the redactions removed the biggest stories, which were about fraud and um, so claiming for mortgages that didn't exist, moving houses, second homes from one location to another in order to maximize mortgage, like having the public pay for mortgage payments. Um, when it all did come out, uh, the biggest sort of head to roll was the Speaker of the House, because he had really been the main um, obstacle for me personally, um, and I think even within Parliament about reform. He just wasn't up for any reform at all. Uh, he um, just, uh, and I did find this um, attitude that it was a kind of denial of what was going on in the world. It was a sort of retreat into this, uh, retreat into the past, very stubborn. We are not changing. This is the way it's always been. And why should we have to, you know, change anything? Why should we have to reform? And I had always thought it was a very short-sighted philosophy because you either, keep, you either change enough that you're keeping pace with what people want, or what people want massively outstrips your, you know, what, how you're keeping up with it, and then you have a, you have a big chasm open up, which I, actually, which I think is what has happened in both Britain and America. The public expects a certain level of participation and um, transparency and involvement, and the institutions which are meant to be representing them are not delivering on that. And um, yeah, I think uh, that's what happened with Parliament. They kind of made themselves irrelevant to a lot of the public because not only were they not representing the public interest particularly well, but then the public saw what um, MPs were doing with public money and thought, well, this is even worse than nothing. It's, you know, they're, they're actually um, using this public money for their private enrichment and their private interest. So, just to say, I didn't just do Parliament. Um, you know, I was interested in all kinds of things. This is just a story I did for the Times. Um, I did a couple of stories about the police, where I uh, I didn't feel like people really investigated the police in a kind of clean hands way. I mean, like I said, it was always taking police officers out or, you know, these kind of social relationships. And I just wanted raw data. So this was just a, I got a bee in my bonnet because I was all, whenever I would um, file FOI requests, the police would always complain and say, oh, why should we have to answer these requests? You're taking money away from frontline operations. And I thought, I bet you spend an absolute ton of money on propaganda, PR, media management. Um, you know, you spend a lot of money telling the public what you want them to know. I bet you spend almost nothing answering questions that the public actually ask. And so I filed this FOI um, asking for the total number of press officers, how much that cost them, the total number of FOI officers, and how much that cost them. And um, I, got, I got back this data, I plugged it all into a spreadsheet, and it was very interesting. I found that um, uh, in some places like Thames Valley, which I believe is your local police force, it was like 27 to 1, the number of PR officers to FOI officers. 
how they, so you can see, like, that's how, that's where they think the priorities are. The priority is pushing out a message. It's not answering what the public actually are concerned about to file an FOI. Um, and, and I guess this is what I mean about clean hands journalism. It's like, I don't need to take anybody out. I'm not beholden to anybody for this information. That's the beauty of law access, public access laws like FOI, is I can have an idea, I file, I shoot out my request, I get it back, I can do a kind of, almost a sort of academic analysis of it, and I have a bedrock of data that either supports or doesn't my hypothesis. I did a similar one with um, criminal prosecutions. So uh, this is one I did for the Times. And again, this is all based off a big spreadsheet that I created with, with um, an intern that I hired. And this was uh, some FOIs I made to the Crown Prosecution Service, where I asked for all of the prosecution data um, for three years, and I wanted to know everything that has been ever prosecuted and what was the end result, like what was the outcome. Was it um, thrown out? Did it not go to trial? Did it, um, uh, did it result in a verdict? And what was the verdict? And what I discovered is that there was vastly different, there was this postcode of justice where if you were found, um, if you had a sexual assault case, it was much more likely to be successfully prosecuted in some jurisdictions and very uh, unlikely to be successfully prosecuted in other jurisdictions. So again, it's, uh, it's a way to tell stories. I just didn't think this kind of storytelling was being done in Britain because people weren't used to A, having access to raw data, and B, they didn't have the skills to analyze it and uh, tell, tell those kind of stories. So I also, um, I also knew these guys from my Your Right to Know days um, who were computer programmers. And um, they had put out a call for projects. And in, the, I think it was 2004, I met with them and I said, I really think you should do something that, uh, that expands people's ability to use this new law. Like they should be able to make FOI requests really easily because it's such a pain in the ass to make an FOI request. It's very laborious and you've got to look up uh, who you send it to and I think it would be great if we could automate that and keep it all as a kind of archive. And so they created this website um, which you can see is now got 387,527 FOI requests on it. And it's now become a repository of it's, it's not a comprehensive list of all the FOIs that have been done in Britain, but it's um, all the ones that have been done via this portal. And it's a great research, um, uh, it's a great research site because not only can you look at how other people have done FOI requests, but if you were doing any kind of uh, report on a public agency or even <coughs> a subject, you can, um, you can look in there and find some information out. And what was, great, what was great about that is they then took it out to other, it was open source, and so they took it out to other countries. And it's called Alavitelli. It's just this open source platform, and now they have it in the Czech Republic, Spain, there's one for the EU, there's one in Australia. Um, just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And uh, so that is some optimism. Uh, I just will end, really, by saying that the, 
the thing that I talked about earlier about keeping up with public expectation is that information just keeps getting more and more voluminous. Um, it's now digitized. And if, uh, if it becomes too much of a burden on the public, if it becomes too difficult to access information legitimately, then inevitably it will be released illegitimately. And uh, this is where my next kind of work came in, was uh, with leaks. So what's interesting about once you digitize information is that it's very difficult to control. You can't lock it into a, you know, a bunker or a filing cabinet. Uh, it's very fluid and it's, it's hard to put barriers on it. And I saw that with the MP's expenses because that could just be, you know, in five seconds you could do a whole copy of that disk. And it's so tiny, you can very easily take it out of a secure facility. And that's exactly, I started interviewing all these hackers and I ended up meeting um, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks people and um, started working with The Guardian on these uh, mega leaks. So, yeah. I guess I'll just end there by saying, yeah, that was my sort of, my thought that I said this back in, what, 2010? The revolution has begun and it will be digitized. I was very optimistic back then about how, as most techno people are, they sort of think this technology is gonna make, it's gonna transform the world and I was very utopianist, I guess, and I really thought how uh, democratizing, digitizing information would be. I have since changed my views on that um, because I think we can also see that if be, having more access to information is one thing, but what about the quality of that information? That's become a huge issue now. And who vets that information? And um, what are the systems in place? So I feel like we're sort of in this strange middle ground where we're kind of in a transitioning democracy where post-represented democracy as symbolized by parliament is not cutting it with anyone anymore. No, but neither do we particularly like what's happening right now, where it's just this total Wild West free-for-all, and people are just, in, you know, online has become this incredibly uncivil space, where you don't come to any consensus. It's just like, who shouts the loudest, or who lies the best? Um, so I think we're sort of on the way to this sort of new iteration of democracy, where we somehow find a way to get we can use technology to get more information into the public, uh, into the public domain. But I also see that there's a role for professionals and experts who can take that information, as I've demonstrated here, and use it to really keep the old, uh, I, the sort of old practices of journalism, where you're weighing it up, you're double sourcing stuff, you're trying to corroborate, and you're really testing for quality of information. So. I, I'm sort of slightly hopeful, slightly pessimistic. <laughs> remains but yes, to be seen. Yes, yeah. but I guess, yeah, I guess it remains to be seen what the, what the future holds, so. Great. Thanks. Heather, thank you very much. Thank you.